from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. On March 29th, Diane comes to theaters. The directorial debut from Kent Jones, esteemed critic, programmer, and the director of the New York Film Festival, Diane premiered at last year's Tribeca Film Festival, where it won awards for Best Cinematography, Best Screenplay, and Best Narrative Feature. We presented a sneak preview of the film last week, with Jones in person for a Q&A following the screening. Our deputy director, Eugene Hernandez, moderated the conversation. Let's go to that now. You've been on this stage for a lot of conversations. How many times have you been on the uh, receiving end of the questions? uh, This isn't the first time, but the first time with a fiction film. Very good. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Thank you. I know I knew this, but I want to remind myself. Wait, where did you shoot the movie? The film takes place in Massachusetts, in western Massachusetts and central Massachusetts, kind of a mix. But anyone who's worked in the world of low-budget filmmaking knows that you have to go where the tax breaks are. (laughs) So we went to what the closest part of the world where there was a good tax break, which was Kingston, New York, Saugerties, Palinville, Rosendale, around there. And then um, the, the forest is in Rhinecliffe. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you're from the Berkshires area of yeah. Massachusetts, and you said the film is set in the edge of Massachusetts, central Massachusetts. Is it, I guess it, it makes me wonder sort of uh, aspects of the film or whether it's the environment or the, the characters, the people, the setting, the dynamic, um, the aspects of it that come from your own personal experience, your own personal background, your own personal life. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, I I just, I had a very burning desire from the time I was very young to make a film that kind of transmitted what I felt from the world of my aunts and uncles. My great aunts and uncles, because I'm an only child, but um, my grandmother was the oldest of 10, possibly 11 or 12, we don't know. Um, Her her father got around, but... They, and it was, for me, it was very much a matriarchy. There were brothers as well, you know, great uncles too, but, you know, some of whom are portrayed in the film um, or recreated or incarnated or something. But I, I, I did, you know, have that desire. Um, and really, and, and then over the years, it became a lot of different things. And I read a Willa Catherine novel that kind of turned my head around about it, and it became a story of mother and son, and... And, and, and the son was addicted. That was something that I... I and anyway, I, I, I felt that um, it, it's, it is the Berkshires and that it is central Massachusetts. But if you're from Boston, I mean, if you're from Massachusetts, you're constantly asked, you know, oh, you must be from Boston. So, you know, I have to say that it's like it's about anywhere but Boston. <laughs> so. I, I related to the matriarchy stuff of growing up in a big Latino yeah, family with yeah. my you know, family that my mom had eight sisters and one brother. Mm. Um, I could certainly relate to that, that world of these, these, these women that are, that are kind of always together and always relying on each other. Yeah. Um, and there's some, not only some really um, especially strong uh, and well-drawn female characters, you have this incredible cast of women yeah. uh, that inhabit each of those roles. So maybe we could talk a little bit about finding the right 
group of women to inhabit these characters and to bring them to life. And we can, of course, get to the central character as well. But it's, it's, it's the central character of Diane, and it's all the women around her. Well, all I can say is that if you're making a low-budget film and you're driven to make a film that um, deals with uh, um, more than you know, a group of women who are 60 or older, you're in luck because there's a lot of amazing um, artists who are dying to work on films on, that are on characters that are going to challenge them. Um, I mean, you know, Joyce Van Patten is in this movie. Uh, she played Madge. Joyce Van Patten, you know, is in Mikey and Nikki, one of the foundational films of modern cinema, really. Um, you know, Glynis O'Connor um, in the role of Dottie. Uh, I couldn't believe that I was working with Estelle Parsons because I saw her on stage when I was seven years old. <laughs> you know, I mean, truly. Um, she acted a lot up in Stockbridge mm -hmm. because Arthur Penn uh, lived up there and she had worked with him on Bonnie and Clyde and so they did a lot of work together. Um, Andrea Martin, I lived in the same building as Andrea for years and I was just so in awe of Andrea that I was too timid to actually ever say hello to her until I finally dropped a script off at her door, you know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was truly amazing to work with all those people. And Deirdre O'Connell, who plays Donna, um, read the script and she called me and, and said, um, this is great, I really want to do it. Where are you from? And I said, I'm from Massachusetts. And she said, I know that, that's in the script, but what town? So like, I'm from Pittsfield. And she said, I knew it, I, I could tell. You know, and her, her father founded the local community college. I went to nursery school with her brother. You know, I mean, it's like, and she dated all the local riffraff. You know, so um, <laughs> that, was, that was amazing and, and wild. But I did write, I, I 20 years ago, I saw Coppola's movie, The Rainmaker, and Mary Kay plays, who I'd always loved, plays the role of the boy who's dying of cancer, the, the mother of the boy who's dying of cancer, and I was so shocked by what I saw in her performance. It just seemed completely in harmony with my aunts and uncles. It's a movie that takes place down south. Mary Kay herself is from Oklahoma. That wasn't the point. It wasn't the externals, it was the internals. And so I always had it in mind that I would write it for her. It was only for her. And when you say you had it in mind that you would write it for someone, uh, do you recall when the kind of seeds of the idea sort of emerged for you? I mean, we know you, and we've shown your documentaries, people might have seen some of them. But, um, you know, we can talk about being a first time narrative director in a minute, but really mm -hmm. the idea for the film. Uh, how far back does it go? Well, it does go far as far back as my, my teenage, and it did develop, you know, my teenage years, and it did develop over time. As to why I took a long road getting to making my first fiction film, you know, it's, that would be a long conversation that no one would be interested in. But I mean, you know, the thing is that it's like, I, I had another script that I was going very far down the road with for various reasons. It didn't, it didn't happen, you know. Um, this one, when I met Mary Kay, I said, you know, I have this idea. And I sent her this other script so she could see what my writing was. And she said, wow, this is great. And just let me know. I hope that you write this other one soon. I couldn't really write it until after my mother passed away. Uh, that wasn't a conscious thing. That was just the way it was. And then after... We were making the film, and when I was cutting it, I realized just how much of my mother is in the character of Diane. 
but that's the way it works sometimes, you know. Yeah. Um, at the Film Society, we know you as a curator and as a critic. Um, and we could certainly have a conversation about the interplay between those two fields. Uh, but I wonder to what extent those two aspects of your life uh, fuel and influence the work you not only have done in, in writing a script and then directing it, but then I also want to ask from the flip side, maybe how you look at the role of critic and curator different after having directed a narrative feature. So both sides of the same coin. Um, I think as a critic, I started to become more and more, um, I felt that there was a real disconnect between the way that people wrote about movies and the idea that they had about the way that movies were made, even before I'd made one, and the actual concerns of filmmakers. That, that became more and more apparent to me and even dramatic. It became, it became really the subject of what I was writing. I wasn't writing normal, you know, nine to five for weekly criticism or something. And so I just sort of felt like that was true. It became even more dramatically apparent to me, you know, times 10 after making the movie. Yeah. Um, I think also that um, obviously in the role of curator, uh, you know, that, that people consider uh, the New York Film Festival an auteurist film festival, right? You know, somebody said, you, you, could you be accused of having an auteurist film festival? I guess so, you know. I, don't, I mean, it's like, but to me, what that means is, you know, I know that it's taken on this kind of like, you know, semi-snide pejorative um, connotation, uh, but what it really means is it's a film made by a person um, a human being who is driven to make the film. It's not just like somebody who, hey, I've got a great idea for a movie, you know, that kind of thing. You know, those are perfectly acceptable films, but the films that we all really care about are films that are made by people who are just like, I am not going to stop until I get this movie made. Mm -hmm. And so I always knew that those things, in, in a way, it's almost like the contrast. I mean, a lot of, I have, a lot of my friends are filmmakers, and I knew that it's a matter of just uh, going forward and making it. And it's that old John Cassavetes adage, the only thing you need to do to make a film is to not be afraid of anybody or anything. Was the process then, um, in what ways was it what you expected? In what ways was it not? In what ways was it um, the way you expected it might go? In what ways was it daunting creatively? Uh, it, was it? Challenging? In what ways was it challenging? Well, there was one day when it was daunting, or, or one moment when it was daunting, and I was like, gee, I wonder if I'm up for this. And then it dawned on me, I was like, oh, I, could, I don't have the luxury of wondering if I'm up for it. If I don't feel like I'm up for it, I'm going to fake it. But I think that that's common. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's sort of like, if you're really going to make a movie, you know, and by the way, when I was making the movie, a lot, more than one member of the crew said, I'm not used to talking to the director. And that scared the shit out of me. Really? Because I just thought, well, that's, you know, but it also gave me a shock of recognition. I just thought that if that's common practice, then that's interesting because it kind of accounts for... <laughs> anyway, you know, I mean, I just, and I just sort of, you know, I think that 
You know, in one way I could say, there's one thing that my friend Olivier Asseas said to me, he's just when, you know, he said directing is just answering questions. He's right. You just, people are constantly asking you questions and you're constantly answering them. But it's also responding to what's happening right then. Mm -hmm. The idea that you're going to be able to take what you have on the page and in your head and absolutely recreate it perfectly is just, you gotta throw that out the window right away. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody really thinks that. Even Alfred Hitchcock, I don't think, really thought that. Yeah. You have to respond to what's right in front of you. If you do it in small increments, that's great. If you do it in large swaths, that's great too. You just have to know and be precise about what you're doing and then let yourself be surprised. Um, switching, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. And you mentioned going to the theater at age seven, seeing Estelle. Um, or, what role did movies play in your life as a kid and when did they play a role in your life? How early on in your life? Very early on, you know. I mean, I was just like, I remember looking at lots of books of pictures of movie stars when I was a kid. Yeah. And I had an interesting, I came, I was a teenager during a very a great time in American movie making, that's for sure, in, in, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, on the one hand, and my father was, was, was someone who had been through the war. He was older than my mom. She was very excited by the newer films, by Altman and Bob Fosse and all that stuff. My dad, my dad was someone that I would watch Bogart films with and Cagney and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I was like at home on television. Um, so, I, so I had different kinds of associations, um, but they were very important to me when I was very, very young. And then when I saw Cabaret, the light bulb went on. Really? There's someone behind the camera. Yeah. What, do you remember what aspect of Cabaret yeah, it was? Yeah, musical numbers, I mean, they're just astonishing. And then Mean Streets, you know, <laughs> I mean, You know, uh, you know, Marty Scorsese and I, uh, <laughs> that goes back personally between us to 1991. Yeah. But <laughs> it goes back further than that, you know, really to Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. But when I saw Mean Streets first, also I'm part Italian-American. My mom's half Italian and I'm quarter. And to see that and The Godfather as well, but to see that as opposed to like, you know, Steve McQueen and Natalie Wood, you know, in love with the proper stranger um, was, was great. But also those first few minutes of that movie when Harvey Keitel lies down on the bed with the drum beats from Be My Baby, um, that drummer just passed away, I think the other day, how blame. That really shook me up, truly. I had, I had Marty in my notes simply because um, as an executive producer and as someone who I know that you're, um, close friends with, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear more about the, uh, what Marty as a, whether as a filmmaker or as a friend, um, are you, have you been able to quantify the things uh, that, that, that he's, I, I hate to say taught you, because that's not the, the right way to say it, but, but maybe what you've taken from either him as a friend or as a filmmaker, or some of the things that might be relevant to this movie, maybe, is a better way to put it. I wouldn't know where to start, but but you know, I, I mean, truly, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I I already had a lot of film history under my belt when I started working for Marty. I saw so much more after I started working for him. He and I were always able to talk about it. We have similar kinds of memories. I think we we're able to remember little details of things. Um, 
But then I think, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's, it, let's just say that it's something that runs very deep. Um, it is something that maybe one thing that we do share is an interest in the question of faith, albeit as two very different people. But also I think, um, you know, <laughs> when he was here, uh, when we did the Other Side of the Wind event yeah. over at uh, Tully during the, the um, film festival and he was talking about watching the movie and he said, you know, these amazing moments when it comes down to just a frame, a cut between, you know, one frame and another. And so it's like, that's something when he and Thelma, you know, are, are making a movie or cutting a movie, that's what they're getting down to. If you take one frame out or put one frame back in, it changes the nature of the moment completely. And you have to be that attuned. He taught me that. Um, I want to give um, some of the people in the audience a chance to ask you a question or two. Um, so if you have one, there's a gentleman who was the first hand I saw, so we'll bring, just wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Well, thanks. Congratulations. This felt very real and uh, in ways that triggered off all sorts of memories that I have of being together with my aunts and uncles yeah. who are no longer alive. Uh, and one thing, just an observation, the scene where Diane is dancing in front of the jukebox in the bar, I just absolutely loved that. I mean, that felt like such a privileged moment, and it just was, was just great. And then a question is there are lots of shots of driving yes. on the highway. And I'm assuming those are not just transitions, uh, though maybe they are, I don't know, but I'm just wondering what, what what you had in mind by having so much, so many driving shots? Um, you know, when we made the film in 20 days, um, and we, that means that, and, and you know, I mean, I was very into that. I was very into the idea of working with limitations. Because, you know, we know what kind of environment we're in now for, for movies. It's not, you know, and so it's just like, and this is not an ordinary movie, and so I had the grace to be able to make it. And so we, yes, you know, the 20 days I was very into, and I was very into with that, taking what I had, instead of wasting time wishing for what I could, didn't have, and making use of it. So, that means what are the elements that you can work from that are part of that world? Well, if you grew up in that part of the world, you gotta do a lot of driving. You're, doing, you're driving a lot from one place to another, all the time. And when you're driving, you become kind of meditative because you're going over the same roads, you're seeing them at different times of day and different times of year, and you're reflecting on time, and that becomes part of the experience of driving. And the driving itself becomes more than just going from one place to another. Um, I knew that also it's very expensive to rig up a, um, a car so that you can put a camera outside of it and film somebody through the windshield. So I knew that I was only going to do that once. And by the way, that's something else. I made a film about Hitchcock and Truffaut. One thing that Hitchcock says in those tapes, and I don't remember whether it's in the movie or not, but he said, you know, never waste an establishing shot on establishing something. <laughs> Meaning, if you can use it for emotional impact, save it for when it's gonna have that emotional impact. It's all a matter of where it goes. So I, f I wanted to just have that one moment 
where you see her face behind the wheel of the car when she's driving to the woods, which is obviously kind of a turning point in the movie. And I suppose that at that point, the driving, yes, it does become something else. I can't say that it becomes one thing, one concrete thing or another. It's, but yes, it's more than just going from one place to another. Was it important to you? Were you conscious of making a film about people and places that you, we don't ordinarily see in films and without melodrama, obviously? Yeah. I feel, yeah, in a big way. I mean, on the one hand, it's a movie that's kind of out of time. It's not quite now. There's also a little, a, a certain level of unreality about it in the sense that, like, you know, if I were being strictly realistic about it, she would probably have a TV in her house and it would be blaring 24 hours a day, right? <laughs> but I didn't, I wasn't interested in making a movie about TV, you know. But also, it's true, you know, there are parts of the world that you do not see in movies. Um, for various reasons, most of which have to do with questions of glamour, uh, romance, and um, desirability or something. Um, also, I guess that part of the world you don't see as much because it's got deep associations with 19th century culture, literary culture, painting. We shot in the part of the world where, you know, all the Hudson River School stuff is, and the film, yes, and it, well, the film takes place in Massachusetts, so, yeah, there's Emily Dickinson, there's Edna St. Valet right down the road, and then there's also, that's where Melville wrote Moby Dick, and Hawthorne, you know, lived, and Edith Wharton. I mean, I went to school at the bottom, you know, I had to drive every day down the hill that Ethan from. Took the, took the sled ride, you know, so it's like the real story, I mean. And so I think that um, that's absolutely a part of it, yes. A few of my uh, friends and colleagues who saw the film last year uh, told me, Mary Kay Place is so great in this, she's great. And I, I knew that coming in, that she was going to be excellent. I was very surprised by Jake Lacey in this. And I wanted to ask you what made him perfect for this role for you? And how did you come to that conclusion? Because he really is fantastic in this. Yeah. Best I've ever seen him. I am really glad that you said that. <laughs> because I think it's a movie that's very dominated by women. It's obviously Mary Kay's movie because she's in every single scene of it. But Jake is, does something really special that is sort of overlooked um, in discussions of the movie a lot of the time. And I think that what that is, when I met him, it, it's a hard, it was a hard part to cast. Um, but when I met Jake, I thought, okay, this is precisely what I had in mind, and he was completely in harmony with the whole vibe of it. And the thing is that, I guess, I showed the film to a friend of mine, and, you know, he said, he's, that's really real. <laughs> and the reality of it is, a lot of the time when you're looking at addicts on screen, you're seeing either the madness, the desperation, or the tragic romance of it. In his case, he was able to get to the, um, the boorishness of it, the imposing, like, deadly part of it. And he really did that well. He really did that well. And I was really, um, you know, there are, 
and also the transition from one kind of addiction to another and then, you know, being bored with that. You know, I mean, he, he really uh, got that wavelength. And it's, um, I feel very lucky to have had him. Just a couple more. Uh, okay, so why don't we go right here and then we'll go back. Hi. <clears throat> Hi. I really love the film. And um, I didn't know anything about this film when I came, when I came here. And... I fell in love with Mary Kay Place about 45 years ago Mary on Hartman. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. <laughs> and I followed everything she's done since then. And yeah. this is the best. This is, this is the best. Mm, thank thank you. you for making this. Thanks. I'll tell her you said so. <laughs> if you had your hand oh, up. Oh, by the way, I just before I answer yeah. for another question, I just want to say, um, I just want, well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Mary Fuller, who's in the movie, and she greeted her. And, yeah, there she is over there. And I also just want to acknowledge Charles Weldon, who plays Tom in the film, yeah. um, passed away in December of, of lung cancer. Um, he, was the, he ran the uh, Negro Ensemble Company for the last few years of his life. Um, and he was just a joy to work with and a real gentleman. All the way in the back, yes. Um, I just think it was like an old master portrait of, of this woman. It was both mysterious and revelatory, and thank you very, very much. Thank you. During the award season, I heard Paul Schrader say that you helped him with a part of First Reformed, or figure out something in the script, and I couldn't help but feel while watching this that the tone was almost sort of similar to First Reformed, and... Um, and perhaps maybe, perhaps maybe just from, my, from the a parishioners or just an everyday person's perspective, that same kind of feeling of ex existential angst or whatever. Would you maybe talk to that? Or, and then if Paul had anything to do with this movie. Um, yeah, Paul and I have known each other for almost as long as I've known Marty Scorsese. Uh, as a matter of fact, they used to have offices down the hall from each other in the Brill Building. And um, I've read Paul's scripts over the years and gone to his screenings. And I was there at the um, notorious uh, screening of the Canyons that was discussed in the, the New York Times profile. I, you know, and I read First Reformed. I read a few drafts, and we got into a very deep kind of, you know, exchange about it and and so Paul did not have anything to do with this movie um, he hasn't seen it yet uh, as far as the similarity between the films <laughs> it's interesting because I think that my film takes place where his I no I think Diane was shot where his film, where First Reform takes place. But I think First Reform was shot somewhere else. But um, it's the craziness of movie making. Um, but um, as far as the similarity between the two films, I get your point. Uh, but I don't know if I would characterize, I, I think it's fair to characterize what Ethan Hawke is feeling in the movie in, in that movie as existential angst. I'm not sure if um, existential angst, existential I can get with, but angst, I'm not sure if that's quite what Diane um, is feeling as much as just 
it's the shock of life. Um, sometimes your living of it goes at one speed and life goes at another one. That's kind of what I was trying to get at. We're almost out of time. There's someone right in the middle who keeps putting her hand up, so I think you're going to be the our last one. Thank you very much. Uh, we don't see Diane in her home until about two-thirds of the way, and then it um, becomes yeah. more and more important. I'm wondering, and I realized, oh, she has a home. That's pretty surprising. Could you talk a little bit about your decision to include her in her home and how you um, shape that as part of the story? Thank well, you. because the story really is about her defining herself as someone who's just constantly driving from this place to that place, taking care of people and meeting people and doing this and doing that for this person and that person. Uh, in the middle of the movie, two very dramatic things happen at the same time and the bottom kind of drops out from under that very suddenly and it, you know that's kind of a magical thing but I wanted to do that so that for the from then on she's put in a different kind of relationship with herself so that she has to really confront her own solitude more and come to terms with it and um, that meant filming her in her own home. I will say at the very beginning of the movie, one of the first things we see is her in her house. But you're right, and we don't actually see the house itself until near the end. But again, that's another thing that I felt like I didn't want to do until it felt like it was going to have more of an impact and be more in harmony with what was happening in the story. I love the movie. And I thought it reminded me of an old Cape Cod man's comment about people leading lives of quiet desperation. But I, I also noticed how you showed a lot of the beauties of nature, and yet they didn't compensate for the whole drabness of the landscape. And I wonder what your comments are about that. Well, Drabness, one person's drabness is another person's beauty. You know, the thing is, again, then we get back to the, the, the low budget question, 20 days, when, is, when does the window open? My window opened in January. Um, now, for me, that was fine, because um, in the world in which I grew up, winter is very vivid in my mind. And um, winter landscapes and, you know, roads where with bare trees and silver light is something that, I really is is uh, something that I return to a lot internally. It's 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 always with me, but I think that um, it's not a matter of compensating of the natural world compensating for any lack as much as it's you know I mean. When you live in that part of the world, the natural world is right there. You know, if you live in Manhattan, it's really not. <laughs> or Brooklyn or Queens, you know, and you have to really go somewhere to find it. And you're looking, you, um, or, or, or usually when you find it, it's a, it's a little patch of it. And so, um, it, but it's right there. But, it, but I also just want to say, I do not, it, I didn't intend drabness. I, I'm not, in saying that I, you know, your experience of the movie is your experience of the movie, but what I, you know, I do think that winter has its own, its own beauty. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Diane opens later this month. I believe it's March 29th. Yeah. Um, I have seen Bam. 
Tell a Friend. It's very yeah. meaningful to a film that's opening in theaters uh, on, a, on a select basis to get as many people in front of it as possible. And, and in L.A., if you have friends in L.A., yeah. spread the word. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, really special for us to have the movie here tonight, as I mentioned, and we're really proud of our colleague Kent, and thank him for sharing it with us, and thank you for being here tonight. Thanks. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>